Our passage this afternoon is Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45, as we continue to make our way through Mark's gospel here at Cornerstone. And uh, once again, it's good to be in the house of the Lord with you. Um, Our passage this afternoon takes place just a few seconds after Jesus has just finished feeding thousands of people out in the middle of nowhere with bread that came out of nowhere. Uh, The feeding of the 5,000, which was really more like probably 15,000 or so, once you count in um, women, children, and everyone there. Thousands of people in the middle of nowhere fed with bread that just came from nowhere. And that's meant to remind us of something, right? It's meant to point us back to the last time that that happened in the Bible. When you have the people of Israel wandering around in the wilderness, people who are out in the middle of nowhere getting fed with manna, bread that came out of nowhere. Um, in other words, we can think of it like this. That, that passage that we just came out of, the feeding of the 5,000, is when we start to hear this Old Testament theme music, this Old Testament soundtrack starting to play. It's, Mark is making connections for us, and, and he's weaving together um, what's happening now with what happened back then so that we can understand the full picture. And the original audience would have gotten these connections and these similarities. If you're, old, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament and with the Exodus story, you can hear that theme music playing in the background. You know, good theme music, a good soundtrack, it really is so important, isn't it, if you're watching a movie for, for, the, for, for a complete viewing experience. A good soundtrack, it just... It adds depth, and it adds intensity and energy. It adds to the experience. It draws you in. It it lets you experience it in whatever's happening in a richer and fuller, more edge-of-your-seat, heart-pounding way. A good soundtrack really does complete the experience. Can you imagine watching Star Wars with no soundtrack, with no theme music playing in the background? Totally different experience, right? Can you, well, I'll put it this way. You would not have even heard the name Alfred Hitchcock if it wasn't for the, the music, the soundtrack, the, the theme music that went along with his movies because they complete the experience. Um, I want to suggest to you that if we don't hear the right theme music playing in the background of our passage this morning, then we're going to miss the experience. Then we're going to miss it. And, and we know that because the... Mark is honest with us that the disciples that are in the boat with Jesus on this day, they didn't hear the the theme music. They didn't hear the soundtrack, the Old Testament soundtrack playing in the background, and so they missed Jesus. He tells us that they didn't understand what had just happened, so they don't understand what happens here. Um, We need to hear the right kind of Old Testament soundtrack playing in the background here. Because if we don't, what happens here is Jesus just doing something amazing, something that you can't do, something that that really distances you from Jesus. You can't walk on water, but he can. And so that's just one more way that Jesus isn't like you. Amen, let's pray. That's the effect of the story if we don't hear the right theme music playing in the background. But if we do hear the right theme music, the right Old Testament soundtrack, 
then this episode becomes something of incredible, immense value. Not only to the disciples then, but to you and I now, because it shows us clearly who Jesus is and what he came to do. How does he do that? Let's read and find out. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. This is God's word. Immediately he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out at sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, and the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you please come now and shine light in our hearts, enlighten our hearts so that we might have eyes to see Jesus, so that we can see what we need to on the sea here. And in doing that, Lord Jesus, increase our faith and our love as we see you as you really are and what you've come to do. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. We're going to be focusing uh, our attention this afternoon primarily on this first paragraph here that's printed in in your bulletin, this episode of Jesus walking out on the sea to find his disciples in the middle of the storm. As we mentioned just a moment ago, Jesus has just finished feeding thousands of people in the middle of nowhere and with bread that comes from nowhere. And Mark tells us that right after this episode, right after that in verse 45, Jesus immediately makes his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him across the Sea of Galilee. Why is that? You can almost hear Jesus saying, get in the boat right now. You've got to leave. It's not safe for you here. You've got to get out of here right now. I don't want you to see this. (laughs) He makes them leave, get in the boat, and he's going to stay. Why the urgency? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, but John does when John records this account. He tells us that this mob of thousands of people that that had been hungry for bread, that once they're fed, they become a mob of thousands of people who are hungry for a king. He tells us that Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. That's the setting. And we know that that was tempting for Jesus. A crown without a cross. Exaltation without 
humiliation. An easy path to the throne. It would have been so tempting, and we know that it was because Satan had already played this card in the wilderness previously, right? We know that this was such a temptation for Jesus. But as much as it would have been tempting for him, he knows that it would have been virtually impossible for his disciples to walk away from. They would have caved in a millisecond because Jesus knows the questions, the conversation they're already starting to have with each other. Mark is going to tell us in just a few chapters that even by this point, they're starting to ask each other, hey, which one of us do you think is going to be the best, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? When Jesus comes into his own, which one of us is going to be right there in the spotlight with him? I think it's going to be me. And, when it, and, and, and here's the reasons. One, two, and then that disciple gets interrupted. No, 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 no. It's going to be me. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be the greatest. And here's why. Jesus knows they can't handle this temptation because they're not even hearing the right theme music playing around Jesus yet. They don't know yet who he is and what he's come to do. And so he says, get in the boat. I don't want you to see this. You've got to leave right now. And so they get in the boat and they start rowing to the other side. And it's late evening by this point. The sun has probably already set. And Jesus dismisses the crowd. And after doing that, he's got to go spend some time by himself in prayer. He goes up to the mountain to pray. He's just walked away from thousands of Israelites that wanted to crown him king. And he's got to go hear another voice. He's got to go hear the voice of his father telling him, you are still my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. But the cross still comes first. So he goes up on the mountain to pray. And as he's praying, you can imagine that he hears the storm rolling in onto the Sea of Galilee below. This happens very often just because of the way that the Sea of Galilee is situated there. Uh, it's below sea level, and so these violent storms can, can, come, can come onto the sea pretty quickly. And one of these, one of these storms rolls up while Jesus is praying on, on the mountain. And so late into the night, almost early morning, Jesus comes down off of the mountain and Mark tells us that it's about the fourth watch of the night, which means it was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's been a long time. And he's on the shore, and he looks out, and he can see the disciples out there, probably three or four miles. How did he see them in the dark, in the storm? Well, he's about to walk on water, so it wasn't too hard for him. But he sees them, he says, making headway painfully. That Greek word there literally means they were being tortured. <laughs> they were making their way torturously. They were miserable. They were getting beat. They should have been on the shore, on the opposite shore, long ago, a long time ago, but they've been out there in the waves, in the storm for hours and hours, rowing and struggling and fighting with the waves and the wind, and they're not getting anywhere. They're getting beat. It's 12 disciples against one storm, and they're getting whooped. And so what does Jesus do? He just starts walking. Don't you love that? He doesn't do what we would have had to do. We would have had to take the long way around. But Jesus just starts walking into the storm, into the dark, 
into the wind. And it would have been around three or four miles from what John tells us to where the boat was on the sea. And it's at this point that Mark tells us this fascinating little detail that seems to just make no sense at all. Um, He tells us that Jesus goes to all this trouble to walk miles out in the darkness into the storm. He makes a beeline for his disciples' boat just to pass them by. Did you notice that? Verse 48, we're told that Jesus goes all the way out there, but that he meant to pass them by. Why is that? Why would Jesus go to all the trouble to get so close to them, but then just stay out of sight? Is that what Jesus is trying to do? Is Jesus trying to tiptoe past them in the waves so they can't see him? Is Jesus powerful enough to walk on water, but he didn't see this one coming? He got a little bit too close. He made one little mistake, and they spotted him. And you can just hear Jesus saying, ah, busted. You saw me. What is Jesus doing here? Why did he mean to pass them by? Did he go to all this trouble not to be seen? I want to suggest to you that it's in fact the opposite. Jesus makes a beeline to their boat in the storm, in the darkness, and on the sea precisely because he wants them to see him. And he wants them to see him in two ways. He passes by them so that they will see him on the sea and so that they'll see him in the sea. First of all, Jesus wants them and he wants us to see him on the sea. Now, without our Old Testament soundtrack playing on full volume here, this scene, it really is pretty straightforward. Again, like we said earlier, Jesus can walk on water. He can do something that you can't do. Um, But is that it? (laughs) Um, When we hear, though, when we hear the Old Testament soundtrack, the Old Testament um, theme music cranked up to full volume, it totally transforms the way that we read this passage. Because I want you to notice something. Mark actually doesn't say that Jesus walks on water. He doesn't say that. Three times he's very careful to say that he walks on the sea. And there's a big difference. Mark actually never uses the word water, but, he says, but he's very careful to say that Jesus is walking on the sea. And when he uses that word, he's actually not just referring to a specific body of water there in the Middle East, the Sea of Galilee. He's staying very broad and very general. He's just referring to the sea. And that's important. Because, again, when we hear this Old Testament music playing in the background, we remember that in the Old Testament, the sea has a reputation, and it's not a good one. Um, The sea in the Old Testament has a lot of baggage. (laughs) It's got a lot of bad baggage associated with it. When I think about the sea, I think vacation. I think Florida and white beaches and seagulls and margaritas, right? Like, that's what I think of when I think of the sea, think of vacation. But if you're an Israelite, and if you're steeped in the Old Testament, the sea does not bring that to mind to you. The sea brings to mind something else. The sea in the Old Testament represents chaos and disorder and darkness and death. 
You remember the Israelites were a landlocked country. They didn't even live by, by the ocean. The sea all over the place in the Old Testament is associated with danger and threat and discord. It's unruly. It's out of control. One commentator puts it like this. In the Old Testament, the sea has an evil nuance that metaphorically represents the entire range of afflictions that threaten God's people in this world. That's the sea in the Old Testament. And we could spend the next hour going from passage to passage in the Psalms and in Exodus and in, in, uh, in, in the prophets all over the place. The sea has a bad reputation. <laughs> But one of the clearest places that we actually see this is not in the Old Testament. It's actually in the New Testament. In the very end, two chapters away from the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21, the Apostle John is given this vision of a world made new, a world that has been scrubbed clean of sin and death and decay and shame. It's been put back together again. It's a new creation. And here's how John sees it. He says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then he tells us something that if you like vacationing at the beach, you might not be too happy about this. He says, And the sea was no more. Does that mean that God doesn't like the beach? And that places like watercolor and Destin and Cancun don't make it into the new heavens and the new earth? I don't think it means that exactly. God is the one that created the oceans and the beaches after all. But we have to remember that Revelation, the scene that John is seeing, Revelation is just soaked to the bone in Old Testament imagery, in Old Testament pictures and language. And so everything that John is seeing is in Old Testament language. And if you want to speak the language of the Old Testament and say, that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be a place where everything sad will come untrue and there will be nothing broken and nothing unholy, nothing ugly, nothing undesirable, but, but that it is the way that it was meant to be. If you want to say that in the language of the Old Testament, the easiest and the shortest way to say it is that there was no sea. There's no more sea. And John, John spells out exactly what this means because just like a few verses after saying, and the sea was no more, he says, here's what this means. Death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, the sea represents everything that makes you cry. The sea represents a world pushing against you. A world that's broken and that's not safe. The sea represents the chaos and the, and the disorder of a world that's rubbing against the grain of who you're supposed to be. It's dangerous and it's not safe. And it seems to always win. And see, the disciples are experiencing that here. They're, they're, on, the, they're on the sea, they're in their boats and, they're, and all of their effort and their experience and their knowledge and know-how. They're all fishermen mostly, but they're getting beat. They can't win. They're struggling in the literal sea the way that all of God's people 
have struggled in the metaphorical sea and still do, we are, in some sense, we are still out to sea on this side of heaven, experiencing a world that pushes back against you, a world that's not safe, where there is death and mourning and crying, all of the former things that will pass away when this metaphorical sea is no more. And here's Jesus walking on the sea. (laughs) You see, he's not just walking on water. He's walking on the sea. He's over it. He's subdued it. It's like the storm has handed Jesus its sword and given up its power. It's like someone walking a big, giant Great Dane down the sidewalk holding its leash, and that Great Dane has its ears peeled down in submission because it knows who's in control. You see, Jesus is not just simply walking on water. When we hear the Old Testament soundtrack playing, we see so much more. Because, you know, in the Old Testament, there's only one person who ever walks on the sea. There's only one person who's ever described this way. And that's God himself, Yahweh, Jehovah, El Shaddai. He's the only one in the Old Testament that ever walks on water, that rides on the storms. And he starts doing it in the very first few verses of the, of the Bible. His spirit in the first few verses of Genesis does what? Is hovering over the face of the waters, over the uncreated, uninhabitable, and uninhabited substance that he's about to form into the first creation. And the Spirit of God is hovering over that. In Isaiah 53, we we hear that it says, Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Only God does that. Psalm 77, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? When the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Your way was through the sea, through the great waters. Job 9, God alone stretched out the heavens, and he tramples on the waves of the sea. You see, in the Old Testament, doing that... (laughs) Trampling on the waves of the sea is a uniquely Yahweh thing to do. And here's Jesus doing what only God can do. And it gets even better. He's not only doing what only God can do in the Old Testament, but he's actually saying what only God can say. Notice that when Jesus speaks out of the storm to them in the boat... Notice what he says. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Those words, it is I, is not just Jesus saying, hey, y'all, it's me. These are are words that no Israelite or Jew would have ever used in reference to themselves before, ever. Because in Greek, it's, it's literally the two words, I am. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Those are the words that Moses heard speaking to him out of the burning bush in Exodus 3. The personal covenant name of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who had come down to save his people. 
I am who I am, Yahweh. That's what Moses heard. This is the same thing that Moses heard in Exodus 34, just a few chapters later, when it says that the Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with Moses and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then it says this, and the Lord passed before Moses. Same words, same thing that Jesus does here. The Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. You see, the disciples heard of the voice of Jesus that they recognized. It was familiar. They had spent years with Jesus But he was saying only something that Yahweh, the covenant God that had come down to the burning bush and dwelt in unapproachable light, would ever say. The same God who says in Isaiah 43, fear not, same language, fear not for I have redeemed you. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you for I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. Have you ever wondered what God is like? Have you ever wondered what the one true and living God is like? Who dwelt in eternity past before Genesis 1. Who dwells in unapproachable light. He's just like Jesus. He's just like Jesus because Jesus is saying, this is who I am. I am the one true and living God, the Holy One of Israel, who rides on the storm and walks in the sea, and I've come to climb in the boat with you. And we need to see him there, don't we? This is why he passed by the disciples, just like God did in the Old Testament, revealing himself. This is theophany language. He's revealing himself as the one who has come to walk on the seas, to walk over the brokenness and the ruin and the wreckage and the decay and the brokenness and the death and darkness of this world. The one who has come to rule over it, to exercise authority over it. So we need to see Jesus walking on the sea. That's what we need to see while we are at sea. Jesus walking on the sea. But, but there's one more thing. We need to see something else. And I'll introduce it this way. I'm a total sucker for those, those videos that you can find all over YouTube of soldiers coming home from combat to surprise their families when they're not expecting it. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I saw one earlier this week. It was filmed a few years ago, but it was, it was at halftime of a University of South Carolina football game, and it was Military Appreciation Day. The, the, it was a sold-out crowd. Maybe they were, they were playing their... their um, Arch rivals, I don't know who South Carolina's arch rival is, but it was a big, packed, enthusiastic crowd. And they're all cheering for this 
for this wife and this mother who walks out to the 50-yard line during, during halftime uh, to be recognized and to be honored because her husband was serving overseas for who knows how long. And she walks out there, and the, the crowd is cheering for her and recognizing their sacrifice. And, and a voice comes over the intercom and tells them to look at the jumbotron. And they look at the jumbotron, and a video starts playing, and it's her husband. It's their dad. And he starts speaking to them, and, and he's in his combat gear, and he's telling them how much he loves them and how proud of them he is how much he can't wait to see him again when his deployment is over. And, you know, they're, they're weeping. The cheerleaders behind him are weeping. Everybody's weeping. It's just a really powerful moment. And then a ripple starts to go through the crowd, and they start to yell and scream and cheer during this video message. Because they can see something that the family can't at the 50-yard line. And there's this soldier that's walking out from the end zone (laughs) to meet his family there in the middle. And they turn around and they just lose it and just run as fast as they can into the arms of their dad that they haven't seen in so long. Because you see, they had seen his face up there and they had heard his voice, but he was so far away. And then they turn around, and he's right there with them. He had been so distant. They knew his love, but he was so distant. And they turn around, and he is right there on the field with them, and they can hug him and hold him because he's come right there. That's the same thing that we see happening here. We see that Jesus doesn't just pass by them so that they can see that he is over the sea. But he walks out into the storm with them so that they will know that the one who is over the sea is in the sea with them. That he's come out there with them. That he's feeling the waves just like they are. That he's wet just like they are. That the one who is over it all is in it all with them. That's the second thing that we need to see here. The second thing that Jesus wants us to see at sea, that he's not just over it. He's not just over your struggles. He's not just ruling and reigning over the things that are making you sad. But he's in it. Deeply more present with with you than you can possibly imagine. Notice something here in verse 48 Jesus responds to the disciples' struggle in a way that, if we're honest, we kind of wish that Jesus would choose a different way to respond to his people's struggles. He's on shore. They're out struggling on the land. He can see them torturously making headway. They're stuck. They're getting beat. They're not moving. Jesus can walk on water, and he's God. We want him to just flip the switch from shore and just make it all go away, don't we? Wouldn't that have been so much easier? Wouldn't that have been so much more efficient for Jesus to just flip the switch from from the shore, snap his fingers and make it all go away? If we're honest, that's usually what we think we really need when we're experiencing the sea, 
When we're experiencing the trials and the sufferings that come along with being out at sea, the chaos and the pain and the suffering and the unanswered questions, we really just want God to make it go away. That's what we think we really need. But Jesus is here reorienting what we, what we would call our greatest need. And he's saying there's actually something deeper. There's something more that you need that I've come to give you. And it's not the absence of your trials. It's my presence in your trials. The thing that you need the very most is not the absence of your trials, but to know that I am present and with you in your trials. You see, Jesus knows that what we, what we tend to identify as our greatest need, what we really want, and usually what we're praying for when we're, when we're at sea, is for God to take us out of the struggle. Just make it go away. And Jesus knows that what we actually need more than that is not him taking us out of the struggle, but the fact that we know that he's come into the struggle, that he's entered into it, that he hasn't stayed at shore, but that he's come out into the darkness, into our darkness, into our struggle, out onto our seas. And that's usually the last place that we expect to find him. Notice the disciples, when they see Jesus walking on the shore, He's the last person they expected to see. They thought it was a ghost. They thought it was a specter of some kind. And they scream like little babies. Because out there in this storm, in this darkness, in these waves, in this struggle, it's the last place they expected to find Jesus. And Jesus walks all the way out there so that we'll know just one more time that that's where we find Jesus. That that's where he's come to find us. In the darkness, in the struggle, in our needs, at our limits. He's the kind of God that just goes to all that kind of trouble to walk out into the sea after us just to show us that he's there, that he's with us, that he's not only over the things that are hurting us, but that he's in them and that he's redeeming them and that it's not lost on him. And that he's getting wet too. Jesus says, you need to see me out at sea. Not only over it, but in it with you. And I will not let you go. So we need to see Jesus at sea. We need to keep our eyes on him over the things that are too much for us. And in the things that are too much for us. And he'll stay that way all the way to the cross where he experienced all of the chaos and disruption and darkness and death of our seas so that he could bring us to shore. You see, he's the rock that comes out to sea to find his people, to find you, how are you experiencing the sea right now? How are you experiencing the darkness and the waves? What are you afraid of right now? What is too much for you? 
what is overwhelming you? It's not a question of if there is something like that, if you are experiencing the sea. It's a question of how you're experiencing it. And you need to see Jesus not only on it, but in it, with you. And just to close, our need is actually even greater than that. (laughs) Because you know what's actually kind of scary about this passage? Is that people can see Jesus do something like this. They can see Jesus walk on the water, climb into the boat, and the storm calm and still not hear the music, and still not understand who he is. It says that the disciples' hearts were still hardened because they hadn't understood about the loaves yet. Their hearts are still hardened. They hadn't connected all the dots yet, and their ears weren't open to the music that was playing all around Jesus. And if that can't open up somebody's heart, it's hard to imagine what would. And so... Our need is so great, isn't it? Out on the sea. Our need is so great out on the sea, being being tossed about by the storm, for Jesus to give us eyes to see in the first place, to be able to see him on it and in it with us. Because we just have hearts that tend to interpret the sea in a very different way either as something that we can handle or as evidence of God's displeasure or something else. And we need the eyes to see Jesus at work on the sea and in it with us. Do you see him there today? May God give us eyes to see him on the sea and in it with us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would do just that. That you, O oh God, would come out and find us either for the first time or for the 10,000th time out at sea. Give us the eyes to see you on it, ruling and reigning transcendent over it. And give us the eyes to see you in it with us, climbing into our boats, imminent and close and present, closer than a brother soaking wet with the very waves that are crashing against us. Lord Jesus, as we, as we see you, let us, let us see you as, as you really are. Open in our hearts love and faith and adoration and the faith to keep rowing, to keep going with you at our side at the sea. Lord Jesus, hear our prayers as we pray from the sea as we give these prayers back to you and as we pray together. Father God, the great I am, you made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and you keep faith forever. For who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness around you? You rule the raging of the sea, for the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, for you have founded them. Let us praise your wonders, for behold, you are making all things new. Father God, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the radiance of the glory of I am and the imprint of his nature, and you uphold the universe by the word of your power. 
By you and through you and for you, all things were created in heaven and on earth, and you hold them together. May we highly exalt you as Lord of creation with dominion in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Lord Jesus, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son, send you forth to create and renew the face of the creation. We long for the day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let us join the heavens as they praise your wonders. Holy Spirit, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen.